my experience of dialogue, problems, conversations that we all deal with in sport, whether it's funding, governance, underperformance, overperformance, recruiting, those things that I used to like walk on eggshells around, actually I can be with all that and actually like let's sit and listen for what the problem is. It's usually not what's being said and we, we can get to the root cause of the problem and let's, let's discuss that collaboratively and, and it's not a, a me versus you problem, it's us versus the problem. Hello and welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe to my YouTube channel to receive a notification and never miss a live interview. I hope you enjoyed this interview and please share with a friend or a teammate that you think will value this episode. Let's go. Welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host, and today my guest is James Tatum. Our key topic for today's chat will be how Nepal and Buddhism shaped James' coaching philosophy. So for those tuning in, whether it be high-performance staff, strength initiating coaches, or athletes yourself, feel free to send in some questions, and no doubt we'll be able to find some time to for James to answer those a bit later on in the show. But welcome, James, JT. I'll, I'll go with the nickname that you put in the bottom corner there. Yeah, it's been, like we talked about off here, a couple of years before our, when we last caught up in a similar format, Zoom, back in the COVID days, ASCA Level 3. So good to have a, another catch-up, mate, and, and looking forward to the next 45, 60 minutes chat and shop. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jack. Appreciative that you asked me. And yeah, these uh, digital formats are our thing. We'll be definitely a little bit less structured than the ASCA Level 3, though, I think. I think so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, for those that aren't aware of your background, Mate, do you mind providing, I guess, context in terms of how you got into the industry of elite sport, but also some different experiences you've done along the way? Can do, mate. I think anyone that's probably working in sport is is not too dissimilar. As a young kid, I was just crazy about sport. I grew up in a small rural community uh, in the southeast corner of New South Wales, a little town called Bombala. And, you know, my, my old man was a sport enthusiast. We touched football and golf uh, and squash and so leaving high school you know representing the region for for golf and squash and rugby league so played a lot of sports and around that early 20s I went went to uni and actually was studying sports journalism because I thought at the time I was an opinionated young lad and just thought I could write what we need to see on the back of the paper but after a year of journalism studies and, and seeing where that industry was going into away from print was where I wanted to be so I stayed with the sport uh, studies and, and changed exercise science. And then I probably met my first mentor at that point, um, Dr. Stephen Bird. He was um, running the Western Region Academy of Sport uh, intern program. And, and I was fortunate enough to um, land a coaching position there and junior athletes in lawn bowls, golf, vaulting, and basketball for the Central West Region. So from Dubbo through to to Western Sydney, not like the Blue Mountains and all, all the way down to like the Cowra region. And I really fell in love with with like that contribution you can make to a junior athlete because it probably struck me in the in the fields in that like as a, a rural kid, there was no coaching to get to high performance. Uh, and that's where my influence and love for the for the profession came along. Post uni I then was I moved into I kind of went down to the Waratahs in, in, in at Moore Park. I got my foot in the door there because I, I agreed to doing an honours, looking at the influence of self-myofascial release combined with a dynamic warm-up on jump performance, kind of validating their readiness to train systems. 
means to an end. I, I, I didn't enjoy the research process. There was a lot of applied research. It, it, the, the research question started out here and ended up really, really down here and, and couldn't be impactful on the training on, and the daily training environment. So when we got the job done, we validated it. But along the way, I, I probably was, met my next influences with, with Tom Tomlinson. He was the strength coach there at the time and he's now the working at the English Football Union or, or rugby, English rugby. And then, yeah, no, Sydney, I played around in, in general pop as well. I was coaching out of CrossFit Sydney. I worked at two private schools in, in, in the GPS, so Riverview and St. Aloysius College with their rugby teams and also a couple of years with Northern Suburbs in the Shoot Shield. Good relationship there with Simon Cron now. He's over at Western Force. That's how I got into the industry. Once I, once I, I did a three-year or four-year stint in Sydney for, for whatever reason, I just decided I, I wanted to be a bit closer to that where I came from. So I moved back to Canberra. That's where I met Julian Jones and got a little opportunity to work at the AS and a casual contract. And from there, created relationships with Volleyball Australia and Tennis Australia and picked up some contracts and four years running some junior development programs with them. 2020, I was, I was offered a job in at the AIS full-time, and that's where I am now. Australia's Centre of Excellence Program and also the Men's Artistic Gymnastics National Training Centre. So I've been doing that now, and, and holy hell, that's just the sports side of things I've done. Yeah, fantastic, mate. Great coaching journey and, yeah, hopefully pretty inspiring for, for those listening in that might be studying their degree and, and all the different experiences and environments you can sort of find yourself in, in our industry, from private sector to schools to... Yeah, working at the, the top level. Um, I guess over your career, mate, so far, what would be some highlights that sort of spring front of mind that you're most proud of? Yeah, I'll keep it to the sports sector at this stage. So I think one of the ones that is uncanny right now that is is the full circle. So I mentioned my first S&C job working in golf and, and, and bowls out at the Central West with the Western Region Academy of Sports. So in 2012, I was doing that. And in this industry, the cream usually rise to the top. So 24 about right, two years to maybe 18 months ago, the coaches at the development age back then and now that the heads of sport kept those relationships all these years and have been able to help Bowls Australia leverage the resources through the National Institute Network and set up their high performance programs with a bit more focus on uh, physical development, leadership in addition to their technical tactical. It's been really experienced and, and, and they acknowledged the AIS and their contribution through the camps process to help them on their success in Birmingham at the, at the Com Games as a result. And they got three gold, three silver, their best Northern Hemisphere performance. So have something from 11 years ago, you don't know where it's going to go, to to maybe, you know, just a drop in the ocean contribution to helping a sport do better and uh, inspire the people like it does. It's, it's really cool. Another one that I love is is the Waratahs, my first gig out of uni. <laughs> I was there for 18, 18 months, maybe two years, and we won the Comp. But the Waratahs won the won the comp in 2014, and we had Michael Checker at the head, and, and Hayden Masters head of performance, and and Tom Tomlinson, and, and a bunch of other interns that I'd love to mention, but I won't. We got to experience a club with a vision and clarity. The aim was to go top two in two years, and we won it in that second year. It was a experience that just showed what what's possible when you have a clear vision and and, and everyone bought in. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's two. I, don't, I probably don't want to take up two, but there's more. There's there's more. I'd love to mention. You just just ask if you want to know more. Lost the audio. Can you hear me? I can't hear you. That's better. Yeah, I got your back. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Sorry about that. We'll edit that section out. 
but yeah, <laughs> going into the flip side, mate, obviously with elite sport comes pressure. What have been some challenging moments in your career that you faced and what did you sort of learn or how did you grow as a coach from, from those experiences? Well, mate, I think uh, a real pressure situation that is that time in Sydney. After leaving uni, my first gig, my first two weeks after uni, I actually went to Samoa for two weeks and worked with the Harpia Sevens and the, and the high-performance rugby team out there for two weeks, a bit of a, an experience, but that delayed my start at the Waratahs. And, and so I didn't have a lot of time to set up where I was living. And I rang a mate. We ended up staying in Emu Plains in a car and commuting from Western Sydney to the central and walking to Moore Park to, you know, do these do this internship free. We were then kind of doing our honours and there was just this big grind for months. And after that, we decided to move in. We got kicked out of the caravan. We moved into one of my mate's lounge rooms for two weeks. Then we shared a room together in Newtown. Like we were just paying like two forty a week for a room so we could afford and then we were able to, we were a bit closer, so we were able to get out at 5.30 in the morning, run a couple of classes, then get over to the TARS, then get over to the school and do the basketball coaching. And, and, and within about 18 months, maybe the two years, we'd finally, you know, use this coaching kind of platform we built for ourselves to make enough money to actually get a house and separate into our rooms. And what that taught me was just like the resilience I have and, and or, or that's possible if you just keep committing you'll find solutions mm-hmm. but what it also showed me was like i had a, this this idea in my head that yes to get anywhere you start from the bottom and work your way up and that's totally what happened and, and i think now as, as i sit there i actually question belief that i had actually relevant or could i have questioned that and done, done things differently because i as a young man didn't ask for help didn't look sideways and just had my plan and no one would help me otherwise and it just created you know something that that possibly could have been done quicker or more velocity with less struggle. But, you know, at the time it was hard, but now I look back on it, it's one of the best, most formative things I did in this industry was look at, you know, it put me at the Waratahs, it put me at Northern Suburbs, it put me at Riverview, it put me at Allos. I even coached year eight basketball, J-League, do they go that low? But by, by doing what I could, it gave me the exposure and probably the credibility to be like, oh, I'm here. Yeah, uh, and I guess, like you mentioned before, that, you know, to sort of the importance of thinking laterally in those moments, which can be challenging when you're so busy, you've got many hats and, you just, and you're pretty much in that survival mode. I guess if you were talking to a coach who, or someone that's listening and that's in that similar sort of phase in their coaching career where perhaps everyone sort of needs to, to cut their teeth, but how could you make it a little bit easier, do you think, now that you've sort of gone through that? Yeah, isn't, refle- isn't- that's, a good, that's a good question. And upon reflection... I don't know if, if, if a young or, or an early career practitioner or coach coming through is, is fearful of asking questions or and things like that or, or, you know, doesn't want to, you know, takes courage to be vulnerable. And I think I think a young coach coming through can be quite transparent about where they're at and, and look look at making requests to, to kind of do things a little differently. I think if I, if I could go back, that's what I would have done. Yeah, great advice. Speak up. Yeah, love that. And that's one challenge. I mean, I've got more, I've got a few years. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I think once I established myself, remember I moved to Canberra and, and started to create contracts for myself with sports. Those contracts, especially with with Volleyball Australia, it started quite small, like 10 hour a week kind of things and 40 athletes on the books. And so, you know, it was very clear to me that this resourcing is insufficient for the outcomes they're trying to get. They don't, They didn't match up. So 
four years, I was able to take that from 10 hours a week to a $95,000 budget enabled it and enabled me to look at SSE from a business sense. I was working as a trainer assessor for my retainer, a 0.6 contract at CIT, and looked at this pool of money to then subcontract other coaches. So I got the coach, the, the coach athlete ratios, in a sense, from 1 to 40 to, you know, 1 to 12, because that, that coach athlete ratio is, I believe, one of the most important things to drive, you know, rapid outcomes. Or more rapid outcome. So yeah, that was a, again that was a big challenge because I actually had to talk to stakeholders um, that I'm not used to talking to. I'm used to talking to head coaches and athletes, not H at the time HPDs, CEOs, and and those kind of roles. Yeah, interesting. How did how did you sort of explore those challenges? Is that is there any mentors that you could reach out to, or is it sort of learn as you go? Yeah, good good question. I actually was probably lucky enough at the time in my CIT role. I was coaching, I was, I was training and assessing students in sport development, Cert 3 and Diploma, Cert 4 and Diploma, and, a, and a, a unit in that was project management. And so the fastest way to learn is to teach. So I jumped off the cliff flying the way down with, with teaching project management. But uh, once I learned outcomes, deliverables, Gantt charting, what's in scope and out of scope, I was starting to craft a project or, or a, a strategy document for S&C and I was able to start using the language of what's in scope and out of scope for S&C, what's in scope, what's a deliverable that I'm committing to that, that, that you're paying for and what's not. And to bring that clarity, it was like a they signed it and, 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 and I delivered it. And then that enabled me to go, they've paid me to deliver outcomes. Or do I have to do it all myself? Well, no, I'm going to look at subcontracting and be creative with where I can get this dollar and start to look at coach development and, and create that opportunity for myself to develop coaches as well as business sense and as well as, you know, developing athletes. And what were some of the perks when you coached athlete ratio moved from sort of 30 to, to 12? Well, firstly, it, it, it mobilised me out of the weeds. Jeez, in this industry, I'll call the weeds just coaching everyone and running around like a headless chalk with mm. all the athletes to then or doing three sessions back to back because at the AS we have a high performance policy that you're going to have one to 12 ratios. So with 36 athletes, I was running three sessions back to back, three hours. With three coaches, I will then go, we've got one session, three coaches and, and mobilize the athletes and the coaches to run the program a little more lean, a little less time heavy. Process and system to be able to think, think that way and put those processes in place and like ultimately help physical development in a different way, thinking differently as well, which is yeah, hopefully empowering for the listeners to sort of think outside your lane sometimes or not necessarily outside your lane, but you can influence your environment, you know, shake things up. You don't have to necessarily do things the same way all the time. Oh, mate, I think pro- learning project management speak and then like and and systems of project management, anyone moving through an SSC career, especially in high-performance sport, you're more than likely going to go if you want to leave coaching into management ah. uh, where – where dollars are scarce and outcomes are, you know, overflowing and and so resort, human resourcing and, and that kind of thing. If you do it, develop, develop that skill set early, it's going to enable you later down the track. And moving over to our key topic, I guess, to intro, we're talking about how you beat Nepal three times. What was the initial, uh, I guess, before the first time, what was the initial attraction? Yeah. Oh, mate. That's let's good segue. I have to mention my, my, the influence of my dad and his sport 
he also influenced me into adventure and we like you know we've been to central australia and walked everything there we've been everywhere in australia and seen seen the countryside but we in 2015 we're like we've got to go see the himalayas and so in april we went over there we went to annapurna base camp and we did a little bit of touring of Kathmandu. me my old man and this and this good mate ross and for me, it was in 2015, so I was right at the end of my, my time time in Sydney, my three years there. So I'd done all that struggling, and I was a pretty salty human at the time, you know. So going to Nepal and, and just being, I felt really small, like looking at the Himalayas. But I also felt really connected to the people there. They were so generous, but they were so absolutely nothing. So I had this kind of recalibrating experience for my first visit to Nepal. And I came back on the 22nd of April. And the irony is, like, three days later, I got a call from Dad. who I was in King's Cross. He worked for the Geoscience Australia in earthquake monitoring and tsunami warning for Australia. And he's just, Nepal's got a massive earthquake happening right now. And it was like, well, I don't know, it struck me in the, in the pulled on the heartstrings very, very significantly. And I was like, what a really feel bad for escaping this chaos and not being able to help and you know like three or four days like mulling over what i what i was going to do i remember i was in the gym at riverview at the time looking out the window coach steven smith was there i'm like i've got to help these people i just had this great time and ended up making this ridiculous pledge to raise 85 grand and trek 850 kilometers to contribute to the families of the 8500 that passed away and I went back to uni. I, I was still doing my honours at the time. I went back to uni. My, one of my mates in media, Jack Thompson from Parks, he's like, do it, man. I'll back you. Anyways, in, in, in two nights, we built a website, created a Stripe account and launched this mission. And like in 24 hours, I had 1,000 followers and 8,500 bucks in the bank. Like it's underway. And from there, but it was no stopping. Like, you know, in, that, in the next 12 months through different fundraising initiatives and, and taking people walking in the Blue Mountains and inspiring people to get into trekking. I've raised 30 grand. That's fantastic. And like I'm wow. 17,000 to Oxfam to get the tents up and the water to the place affected. And then the next 13,000, I actually started a partnership with the Rich for Nepal Foundation and they started letting me do what I want with the money. So I rebuilt some amenities in a, in a remote school and then funded English teachers in that school for the next 12 months to enable the government funding to go to the type of things that school wanted. And so we went back to Nepal in 2017. My, my dad and another strength coach, Seton, we went to Everest Base Camp. We summoned Island Peak and then we went to that school and had a, and built the toilets. Oh, how good. So we raised the money and put the bricks. And then in 2000, 2019, 2018, I went back by myself. and I, I did the three passes trek. I did 30 days in the Himalayas. And then went back to the school and saw the impact of like a year later that the amenities were redone. They've had their English teacher and handed over some volleyball equipment because volleyball is a massive sport in, in Nepal. And yeah, just just able to really look at contri- contributing to to less fortunate communities. Oh, that's awesome, mate! Hey, what a yeah, what a great story. I wasn't I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. It just got to, just goes to show going with your, your gut when you've got a strong feeling to to do something. Uh, you can make with it. It, put, it motiv- motivation disappeared. I didn't need it. Like I was once I'd made that public declaration, and 
I mean, I was scared out of my brains. Like, I actually worked and people started contributing money. Like, I actually yeah, got after it. And, and, and the benefits outweighed what I did. Personally, I didn't think I would get anything from it, but I learned how to have conversations that influence people to contribute something they didn't know. I created a, a vision and a mission and, and a little, you know, not-for-profit that, you know, we got T-shirts and merch out. Like, it was just all all inside, like, helping a community on the other side of the world that are less fortunate than me. And it really kicked in the, the unconditional, like, kindness in me, right? And then Nepal's, you know, the home to... Tibetan Buddhists and the Maya Hana, the Maya Hana tradition of Buddhism, and so I got into that while I was over there. Yeah. That was on the third visit or the second. So the third visit, I did three days of Buddhist studies with a monk, and then went down to the birthplace of the Buddha in Lumbini and meditated for twelve days straight um, yeah. in the in the Vipassana tradition and or in the Vipassana method. And yeah, you know, I was interested. Well, I guess I was interested for multiple reasons. One's Buddhists are happy with nothing. What's that about? Our mind is the common denominator in everything we do in performance. So if I can master that, like I seem to have worked on mastery of the body, what's possible? And I've always been one to try the try first before I tell others to do it. So yeah, the practice of, of you know meditation sort of started in 2013 in my in my times in Sydney using the Headspace app. In 2017, I did my first 10 day past a retreat in the Blue Mountains, and then in 2018. I'm doing a 12-day retreat in a way more intense environment in the birthplace of the Buddha and, and taking the wisdoms of an ancient technique that helps you see, I guess, the, the source or the root cause of maybe, you know, human suffering and, and misery. And talk us through the, the 12 days. Like, is it a how, – how does it start? What time of day? What is a typical yeah, it's a, like? Is it gong, routine? It, yeah. The gong goes off at 5 a.m., maybe 4.30 and you're encouraged to shower mindfully and, and get to a 5 a.m. sitting and you just meditate. This is the one in, in, in Lumbini until breakfast. And then you've got walking meditation to get to breakfast and you've got eating meditation and you're, you're honouring noble silence. You're not looking at anyone. You're just there to, do, to live like a monk and, and be like a monk. And yeah, you, you, you're basically mindful from the time you're awake to the time you're asleep at 10.30 at night. And like... Any kind of track. Let's let's think of my meditation as as a training modality. Mm-hmm. If you do it twenty minutes in the morning, twenty minutes in the afternoon, you'll get some effect. If you immerse yourself in it like I did for twelve days, you are going to get a rapid understanding or discovery of what mindfulness is. And does it get easier uh, as the days go on? Or? Yeah, hundred percent. Probably probably better to reflect on my first ten day retreat on the process. So. There's a, there's a technique done for the first four days of this guided meditation where you are literally just sharpening your ability to focus on on a, on a primary object. And, and this one was your breath in your nostrils and out. So you observe, sit and observe the cold air going in your nostrils and the warm air coming out and that little space. And you literally just focus on it. That's your job. And when you notice you're not doing your job, come back and do your job. Day one, two, or three, your monkey mind's doing anything else like, oh, what I, what I, what I'm missing out on, what I would like to do tonight, that kind of. Uh, but then by by day four, really sharp. If you're really diligent and really disciplined, you know, I was there. I wanted to master it in ten days because I didn't want to do this again. I just want to take the juice and run with it. Yeah, and then, so I was really diligent. And by day four, had this really like sharp ability to concentrate and hold focus for minutes. But then they start 
introducing the Vipassana technique, which is to observe reality as it is. So the Vipassana technique is to look at sensations in the body as they arise and pass away because a Buddhist principle is impermanence and they believe everything's impermanence. And so these sensations arise, pass away, arise, pass away, some painful, some pleasant. And you can observe yourself cling to pleasant things and you can observe yourself avert the painful things. And that the fundamental nature is greed, which is a human suffering. Okay, you, you cling to pleasantries and you avoid pain. So anger and, and, and delusion. And if we don't know this, if you don't understand that this root cause of human suffering or don't see it for yourself, you are just guessing really. And that's what through the Vipassana technique from day, day, day five through to day 10, you're just literally observing and letting things arise and pass away. And for me, what it made available was like how I'd allowed pleasant things but, you know, path of least resistance is you follow your pleasant and 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 realize like I've avoided things, conversations, people because they didn't bring me. They were they were my my childhood, my early adolescence. I'm avoiding things I didn't like, and so what that makes available moving forward is the hard conversations. Yeah, I recognize I'm having a internal you know reaction to something that I've never done or something I've never heard or. I'm challenging myself to see that I've got some level of like inferiority complex. Like those people are not my people. I'm not going there. It's like actually to be a professional, I've got to go. They've got to have a conversation with that person. And that's what mindfulness brought for me practically. Learn and aware awareness. Yeah. I've got a real awareness for you. I'm not in my emotional home base. This is pleasant. I'm going to say yes to that. No worries. I actually question it. Why am I taking the easy option? What am I, what am I avoiding? Yeah. So you can be more deliberate in your in your yep. approach and just re- referring it back to training which probably for most of the listeners uh, is a good sort of analogy i guess so to speak but is it something now that you've had those training camps let's call them the 10-day and 12-day yeah. taking the juice um do you do you need to keep topping up your your stores i guess so to speak after that like is it like a t- maybe one of those a year do you think is optimal and then you have a daily practice or what do you think sort of it's in- a great analogy in- mate and I've, I've started to like, it's been 2018, 2019, what, November 2018 was my last one. And a lot of the personal discoveries in those things that are long-lasting, I believe. And then there's a Buddhist kind of belief that everything's impermanent and, I ta- and they attach that to the cycle of the breath. So your breath arises and when you exhale, it passes. And there's also a belief that, you know, humans, there is no I, we're just mind and matter. And we're forever changing. And so it's absurd to attach a name to yourself, which is forever changing. So by moment to moment, you're a new version of yourself. So that loathing of the past disappears if you can adopt that belief, I believe. And um, so those kind of things allowed me uh, since 2018 to all I'd have have this skill to go breathe in, breathe out, reset. I'm back at my emotional home base. And I'm moving on. I'm a new version of me, and I'm, and I'm cracking on. However, that said, I recognise that these training camps, these ten day intensives, can really just resharpen up your focus, give you an opportunity to go really quiet and kind of recalibrate yourself. And I'm actually thinking, like in the next year, that you know, poor Julie, I'm going to have to take a ten day holiday where I can't even text you. Yeah, it's silly. I've got a fiance now, so a bit more responsibility than just going off as a single bloke and doing what I want. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm interested in, in in doing that again. 
and you, and it sounded like there was a process of almost development on the it might have been the ten day course where yeah there was a one method and then it progressed to a different method. So is is, is it each day there's a theme to to the days? Uh, question. So that theme, the first one I did the Vipassana in in the Blue Mountains that had a curriculum mm-hmm. that was like day first four days is the the mind sharpening, the next seven is Vipassana, and the last day is Meta where you're creating good things and putting out intentions in the world and wishing good things of other people, which is that loving kindness sort of uh, piece of uh, the Buddhists. The one in Nepal, it was um, more of an extension of Theravada Buddhism and it was you had a, you had a chat with a, a, a teacher in the afternoon on your practice and there was no curriculum. You just sit there and you observe the rise and fall of your abdomen. That's your job. I found in the library a book, a scripture written a thousand years ago that actually like kind of experience as you walk the path to enlightenment through this tradition of mindfulness. And I was able to go, wow, I experienced that like day two and it's written in the book in chapter three. Like, And so of an evening, I was just reading a chapter of a book as I noticed as I'm going through this retreat, the changes and the ability to focus and, and what I'm kind of identifying as, as, as present moment reality rather than when you're thinking about it, you're in your head and that's not reality. Coach working in the world of performance, like you mentioned, that emotional home base and being able to reset uh, be a pretty handy tool uh, to be to be your best, not only for yourself, but also for, for your athletes. Have you found that this has made an impact on, on, I guess, your performance as a coach? Through the meditation in the, in the, first, in the first retreat I did, the, the teacher would talk about observe things as they arise and know their nature and let them go equanimous mind like equanimity was the thing you don't judge it you just accept it and you move on and so that equanimity or peacefulness or stillness observing things you see as a coach or things you you know scoreboard pressure right what are we what's our you know scoreboard we see a scoreboard that's stimulus and then we have a response to that what meaning are we adding to the scoreboard through mindfulness you can go scoreboard yeah that's information i'm going to remain equanimous and make a decision from a non-emotional, you know, without emotional kind of build-up. And, and I think as an S&C coach, I think before mindfulness, see bad reps, react, invalidate the athlete. Now it's see bad bad reps, let's have a conversation about that. From a non, And I'm not going to invalidate you because I'm not reacting now. I'm actually, let's have a discussion. What are you dealing with this, this, with this exercise? And, and then look at skill. Skill acquisition, where, where, where do we need to go? Do we need to dial back? Do we need to feel this exercise another way? Does this, and, you know, as I move up in my career, I'm, I'm sitting at bigger and bigger tables with different people and I'm able to listen to the, com- the hard conversation without getting emotionally charged. Yeah, that was going to be my next part, I guess, uh, your interaction. So from a mindfulness point of view and, and building that self-awareness, has that impacted working with not only athletes but also other staff members from an interactions and communications point of view? Yeah, I mean, I'd love them to be on this and say what it's like being with me. But for me, like I, my my experience of dialogue, problems, conversations that we all deal with in sport, whether it's funding, governance, underperformance, overperformance, recruiting, those things that I used to like walk on eggshells around, actually I can be with all that and actually like let's sit and listen for what the problem is. It's usually not what's being said, and we we can get to the root cause of the problem, and let's let's discuss that collaboratively. And, and it's not a, a me versus you problem; it's us versus the problem. And, and it's a, it, 
I, I would just I make an assumption that people think I'm pretty pleasant to be around most of the time. I'm good and and deep and a very decent communicator because I'm not I'm not rolling up too much. I keep things pretty jovial, and that's probably a reason for mindfulness. And two, I've spent so much time in Nepal, and I now have a belief that you know I, it's a privilege that the biggest problems I have are sport related problems, which is an industry we've created for entertainment purposes. Yeah, no, well said. And, and for the athletes listening in and coaches, actually, you mentioned Headspace, starting with that, and then you've been on this journey ever since then. And it's you know got to the point of a 12-day mindfulness experience, which is, yeah, listening to that sounds uh, significantly challenging. Where, where would you recommend people start? What's a, a, an effective way just to start building for maybe you want to improve your focus yeah, from a performance point of view? It's good to recognize. I think my, when people hear mindfulness, they immediately think meditation. And then their idea of meditation detracts them. They're like, I don't want to sit there and do nothing. Like, I think it's, it's good to recognize what mindfulness is. And mindfulness is an interruption to mind wandering. And we're very, very well trained at mind wandering this day and age. I think there's a statistic from, I got this from uh, well, uh, Yale, the, the science of well-being, that 40 9.6% of our day is spent mind-wandering, and mind-wandering makes us feel lousy. So, yeah, mindfulness is an interruption to mind-wandering. You have a stimulus or uh, an object of focused intention, right? That can be music. That can be sport. I think it's the reason why a lot of people play sport. It gets rid of their mind-wandering. They're in flow state, and they're, and they're doing things they love. So, you know, my check and challenge is what is our belief of mind mindfulness, it's not just sitting meditation. And yeah, how people get into it, right, is is what's probably questioning why would I even want to get into it? Mm-hmm. Start there because I'm not one to preach things and say, do this. Like mindfulness is is there for everyone. People know what it is and you can contemplate that. But at some point there'll be a, I want something to make a lasting difference. And that's where I would suggest if you're at that point, pick up the Headspace app and try the free 10-day course. They're 10-minute sittings and you're starting to get training. Nice, nice pommy voice as well. They've got Andy on those apps. I've met Andy before. Getting, yeah, you're getting trained in, in, in starting that journey and thoughts uh, can be observed and behind them. I think the analogy is a, is, a, is a stormy day. There's clouds, they're your thoughts, but behind that is some um, serenity and, and a clear blue sky. And if it's something that works for you, then you can... You know, once you dip your toe in the water, it's like anything. You can you can go down the rabbit hole like I did. And for, for those starting out, uh, I guess more from an athlete's perspective around game day, we've been sort of connecting it to training, you know, and like any training can have some negative effects in terms of fatigue, let's say. Would you say there's an element of cognitive fatigue when starting out with mindfulness for someone that maybe their mind wanders 70% of the day and now they're doing, you know, 20% less of of, of mind wandering is there some negative effects to to that happening on game day potentially and, and leading into a session if you you've used your tickets too early in the day or is it more um, well, i think i think those those moments you take give you back some some energy uh, even if it's like it, on game day uh if you start to notice you know i play i still play pretty high level golf now and i play squash and i recognize on game day that i have an expectation to play um, but through some grounding kind of mindfulness, you know, be aware that my feet are on the ground, I can hear the birds and I'm feeling that I'm here I am. The rest is a mental formation that I'm getting excited about. That's not now. So if you can have a, a moment of stillness, call it a minute, call it three, maybe 10, just reset, recalibrate. It can give you energy to something you're moving into. Yeah, I love that. 
And what about um, mindfulness coaching? So when you're presenting with players uh, or perhaps you're, you're selling a, a new training block, um, has it helped with things like clarity and, and communication to players? That's, I mean, coaches are performers too. Let's start there. And, you know, we're not, we're not shooting the hoops anymore or, or doing the flips. We're, uh, we're starting to create conversations and selling compelling futures for athletes to step into and undertake for greater performances. So if you can center yourself, deliver a clear and concise message, we know that athletes' attention spans is one of the finite resources we've got to deal with. You can put yourself in the best place for your performance because it's always scary to put yourself at risk, and 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 you know that's what we do. We, when we when we have an idea, we've got some buy-in, we want to steer the ship in a different direction. Embarking on that first voyage is quite stressful, and so if we can acknowledge that through some mindfulness, bring ourselves back to center, and actually focus on what the outcome is, and when it's an outcome for someone else, it's a pretty comfortable conversation in the day. If we're focusing on the risk of ourselves, that's selfish, and no wonder you'd, you'd probably not get get any of it. Yep. And, and for the athletes that have started on this journey, uh, what are some of the common benefits that you hear about for their from their yeah, athletic pursuits? Yeah, we've we've I've got some uh, some evidence of of young guys that I've worked with here in the basketball program. I mean, I've got some great psychs that have done some. Uh, introductory work to mental skills they do that for me that's not my lane through through the through the introduction and 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 practices we've seen guys probably that uncoupling of like stress and performance like two or three minutes into a basketball uh scrimmage scoreboard pressures building and i'm panicking i've got to make a difference like stopping those kind of mind wandering or, or rabbit holes that our minds go into so give them strategies to grounding, come back to the present, reset, and give them the tools to kind of when they're on the bench or when between sets and reps, recalibrate. Let's all, well, let's reflect on that performance and start again. Like those, those kind of, yeah, I call it grounding and kind of acceptance that that sets over and we move on to the next. Is I see is if the first two or three things in a session don't go well, then it's a bad session. We're starting to forecast. So that's the whole session's done because it didn't start well. Who says so? That's future. That's not now. If we can put in a strategy to reset and be optimistic and open that, you know, flow state's coming. We're just got to be willing to accept it. Let's not ride off the whole session just because your signals or your first three or four reps are telling you it's going to be a bad session or a bad day. Like that's the self-fulfilling prophecy. I want to stop that. I want to be open to We're going to discover something in the next 45 minutes. We're going to have a really good training unit, maybe the session. But if we discover something, that's a great session. What's yeah. That before we start. Yeah, I love that re- mindset. I think it can apply to anything. And, you know, too often we can be quite black and white and, and quite absolute when really there's, yeah, who knows what's around the corner uh, and what's to come when if you keep that open mind and stay present. We've covered a fair bit in detail, not only your journey with it all, but also from a coach's perspective, the benefits uh, of mindfulness and, and I guess leaning on Buddhism as a, as a philosophy and how it can transfer into just life in general but also in the world of performance is there anything jt you want to touch on before we start to to wrap up the show mate move on to more a couple of personal questions i think i think we covered most of it mate i think you know this is a an area of the first thing i was like i'm not an expert in having mindfulness lead to greater performances i'm in that inquiry i'm in no position to say go down the buddhism route like at all it's just something i did and i found benefit in it and it's made me a I think a better practitioner, more approachable, more accepting. 
and you know all that information is there if, if people want to choose to develop themselves in something that's not mainstream so to speak uh but it's brought me benefits personally professionally being a more mindful operator serves everyone not just you absolutely right love it mate thank you for for sharing from an industry perspective is there anything in your work life that makes you angry or pet peeves that you'd like to to change yeah look you know I might be seen as like a mindfulness person, but I'm not immune to the the three fundamental causes of human upset, which would be like undelivered communication or withheld communication or thwarted intentions. Like I want to get stuff done quickly and or, or misaligned or, or unmet expectations. Those three things upset anyone. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm able to catch it with mindfulness, but well, where I work, we got we got the AC's got a lot of a lot of employees, a lot of initiatives, a lot of NSOs rely on us. There's a lot of stakeholders, and so navigating it, I, I'd like to go fast, but I've got to, I've got to recognise that it's a, it's a process and, and take time. So that that's a bit, you know, that's the the ability to recognise my intention is speed, and you know, and and, and that's not what I'm going to get. It's able to that that's probably we'll go there. Yeah, yeah, constant challenge. And then, what about favourite way to spend a, uh, a day off? Yeah, the day off. I love go- golf, man. Like everyone around here is knows of a golf night it offers me so many i can be i can be mindful golf i can be performance golf i can be recreational golf i can be social golf like i get a lot from from my four hours on a saturday or a sunday i'm also a a bit hedonistic i love a good good like high high quality meal and 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 the conversations around high quality food so like i'm going to a decent restaurant tomorrow night with with a couple of people and really looking forward to that and well, I actually, you know, I just in, enjoy surrendering and indulging in, in my home with my fiance. We, we love a good Netflix series. We're watching, uh, oh, goodness, it's on Apple TV. What's it called? The coach come starting America in football. Oh, I've, I've, got, I've, I've watched it right like, now. I'm on stand at the moment. Yeah. Uh, it's it's, it's, it's awesome. TV. Oh, Apple TV. Yeah. Oh, we, we just watched all the sports stuff on, on, on Netflix. That was good stuff, like. Drive to Survive, I'll find them there. They're all on there. They're excellent. Obviously, of this recording, late August 2023, what are you most excited about for the rest of the year, mate? Yeah, it's a short time frame, but I'm actually going to Melbourne in two weeks with my brother and my old man. We're getting around the AFL finals. Cheating. A lot of guys are going to play. That weekend, the, the male artistic gymnasts that I'm working with are going over to, to Europe. Their first Olympic qualifier is... Is, uh, is then I'm really looking forward to seeing how our three boys go there. I'm going to India to work with the ASCA in October. Uh, I've got a week of level one delivery in India. I'm really looking forward to the challenge. I'm going to be pretty close to Nepal, so maybe get me through a trip. Yeah. And the NBL. The NBL this year is really exciting. It's my fourth year of coaching the Centre of Excellence, and we've got some excellent athletes seeping into the NBL now. We've got Taryn Armstrong at Cairns Type Bands, Alex Tui. At Sydney Kings, Lockie Ulbrick at Illawarra, Josh Bannon at Brisbane Bullets, and uh, David Upweir and Ben Henschel over at Perth Wildcats. So to just see the talent, I know who they are as characters, and I just can't wait to see that the NBL is starting this. It just has way more relevance for me now that it's there's there's kids that I've worked with over the last four years starting to get in and then ruffle some feathers. I'm really excited for that. Yeah. Yeah, plenty happening. That's plenty to be excited about. Love that. That's awesome, mate. Thank you. Thank you for sharing, and thank you for coming on as well and giving us a, a yeah unique insight into 
I guess, some Eastern philosophies and how it can transfer not only to help making life better, but also helping with performance, both from coach's perspective and, and athlete. It's not something we've discussed on the podcast before, but no doubt there's going to be, you know, I've got two pages of notes. I found it hugely beneficial and no doubt the listeners did too. So I really appreciate you coming on, JT. For anyone that's got any follow-up questions, mate, on the topic or just to connect in general, where's the best place to, to find you, mate? Yeah, I've got, I've got a, an Instagram and a, and a Twitter if people want to shoot me anything on there. I'll respond in, in, in my time, like not straight away probably, but it's my last name, but you change the first A to I. So it's Tidham189. That's my handle for Instagram and Twitter. If anyone wants to DM me on there, I'm more than happy to have a chat. I'd, I'd love to hear from athletes and coaches that are and maybe dipping their toe in this area and want some want some validation or advice or we'll just chew the fat about it because it's it's fascinating to me and it'll be a lifelong pursuit of mastering this so everyone benefits absolutely mate no, i appreciate it and and yeah thank you from, i guess on behalf of listeners well i make sure to add those links in the show notes so if you are listening to the recording and you're driving don't stress whenever you park the car you'll be able to find it easily there Thank you for everyone that's tuned in live as well. Our next live chat is with David Boyle, which will be 3 p.m. Australian Standard Time, the 7th of September. So thanks again, JT, and thanks for everyone tuning in. See you on the next show. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, so I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their N of 1 experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be and then game changes game changes whatever that might be and look it probably keeps me in a job but that it does drive me insane because sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and you know and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary it unravels everything that i've been working with an athlete for yeah yeah another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the prepare like a pro live chat show here's an example with academy member rama davies the strength conditioning coach at the box hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man that. Uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke a, a, quite a bit about, um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or, um, do physically that, um, you wish you either knew or did, um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm. 
Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is, is gratitude. I spend a lot of my time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just to, be, to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm -hmm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear, fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.